This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door and run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cell. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, everyone, to another special Stool Pigeon Saturday, and special because I'm here again. (laughs) I'm so excited, and we are excited to welcome back our education specialist, Suzanne Squires. Hi. Hi. Welcome. I'm How are you? happy to be here. Yay. Very excited. Yeah. Another juvenile yes. that spent time at the old Idaho Penitentiary. I can't uh, wait to hear about it. And I love it because there's a great connection that Anthony made that when he shared his yeah. something like that. This yeah. week's episode on Tuesday, it was all about Bernard O'Neill and my half of the episode. And he happens to be a mentor of Suzanne's topic for today. That's right. And my topic for today is James Green Whitaker is his name. And he was born in 1901, September 2nd, 1901 in Utah, Box Elder County, Utah, which is probably close to the Idaho border. Yeah. Northern Utah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was one of four children born to um, Nancy, his mother, who was born in North Carolina, and David, his father, who was born in Utah. And actually, they had two twins. They had a set of twins first in 1899, and it was a boy and girl, a little Sarah and David, and they died at birth. And so Jimmy was the next one born in this family, and then he also has a younger brother by the name of Willis. So Jimmy's quite an interesting young man. He and his family lived in a kind of a remote uh, farm outside of out in eastern Idaho, and it was then it was called Cyrilda, Idaho. I don't even know if that's the name of the town anymore, yeah. but it's near Ashton, Idaho. Okay. In, it's interesting because uh, his story starts er, when he was asked to stay home one day to help his mom with the laundry. Mm-hmm. So the story has it that dad wanted to go work in the fields, and Jimmy wanted to go with him, and his dad encouraged him to stay home and help his mother with the laundry. Well, Jimmy didn't want to stay home and do the laundry. So sad to say, I'm going to read you the article from the Teton Chronicle okay. that kind of talks about his, what happened with his mom and him on that day on Thursday, October 3rd, 1912. So it goes, Mrs. Whitaker was doing the family washing, and with her was her two little boys, aged 8 and 12. The eldest boy would not turn the washer fast enough and was requested by his mother to turn it faster. This he refused to do. And then, after carrying out a bucket of water, he refused to work more. His mother carried out a bucket of water, and when returning to the room, met the boy with a shotgun that appeared to be in the house and loaded. 
the mother demanded the boy put the gun down, which he refused to do, and told her that if she came closer, he would shoot, which he proceeded to do, blowing off the top of his mother's head. Oh, my gosh. So he really didn't want to do the laundry, did he? Oh. I've been telling something akin to that story but that is just horrible that's the worst i don't think i ever had the details until i I looked it up in the in the newspaper so that was that was a very very crazy crazy occurrence after he committed the crime he got on his horse he kind of rode off the the ranch there and hid out in the hills for a while but he did come back Mm -hmm. and that was when uh he was in the house actually then when his dad uh found him Mm -hmm. so the Idaho states, uh, I'm sorry, let's see, he admitted freely that he killed his mother. So he didn't deny it. He said, yes, I did that. And then he said, I didn't want to work in the house. And that was just, he says, I don't want her to whip me anymore. Whoa. So he was jailed then in Fremont County for the crime. And on November 14, 1912, the, a month later, he was convicted of murder in the second degree and sentenced 10 to 50 years. So back then, if you think about it, there's no juvenile detention centers. Mm-hmm. There was a center uh, at St. Anthony's, right, which is, was originally started as a boys' school mm-hmm. and eventually housed young mm-hmm. boys yeah. and girls mm-hmm. for juvenile crimes. Yeah. And But at this point, that was not an option for him. So the only documentation that we have that he came to the old Idaho Penitentiary was in a warden's report, the 1911-1912 warden's report. They indicated by age how many inmates they were taking in at the time. And under the aged received 10 to 15, it was that they had admitted one, and that was probably Jimmy. So he arrives here, and from what we know, I believe, wasn't he... Was he housed in two house for a while, in the North Cell house, or was he... I believe so. Okay. It sounds like they tried to sell him with trustees with somebody who sure yeah not a right. violent criminal but right and well i think respected right exactly <laughs> and i did and i do think that they did try to keep him away from the general population mm-hmm. as much as they could because they did realize that this is this is probably not a good thing to have right. this young person seeing right. and being around other inmates that are you know yeah. pretty hardened yeah. criminals yeah. yeah right i know patrick murphy Oh, right. writes about him and he's just like who is this little boy that's here and mm-hmm. and, and other inmates kind of just explained this little boy in the prison yard. Yeah, right. So actually, when he came here, um, he became quite, he he was very noted in the psychological community out in the United Mm. States. There were other doctors and physicians that were very interested Mm -hmm. in why this little boy would commit such a heinous crime. And so there was one, Dr. Lyman, I believe, and he visited Jimmy on November 20th. So shortly after Jimmy's here, And he is a psychiatrist who assesses the competence of defendants in a court. Mm -hmm. So he was super interested in in Jimmy and came and visited with him. And he is quoted as saying, the boy has no remorse. A moral degenerate will always be a menace to society and must be kept in an institution. Wow. So it was a pretty heavy, you know, um, just, again, saying that this kid is really bad mm-hmm. and we need to keep him locked up. Right. So, and I don't think that the warden or any of the guards or anybody knew really what to do with this little guy. Right. Yeah. You know, well, how, yeah. what are we going to do with him every day? Yeah. You know, the inmates wanted to work. Jimmy wasn't probably going to go out and work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what do you do with this little guy right. while he's here? So the doctor also noted that the boy's parents were first cousins. Oh, and this might account for the way 
for his perverted type. <laughs> so that was kind of an interesting assumption. Whether or not that's right, true, I yes. don't I don't know. Right. But so again, more things that are kind of right. not going in Jimmy's favor. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this is where um, kind of this uh, Barney O'Neill enters in, the one that Anthony was telling us about. Lived in North Idaho, mm-hmm. and did he embezzle money? What did he do? He he was officially in for making a false report. Okay. But he had embezzled, and he had taken in transactions, even though his banks were going under and were worthless. And, like, and all this. the books. And he used uh-huh. cooking books yeah. and basically embezzling. Right. But, but we looked at his yeah. mugshot, and he looks like just a fun guy. He's got a big <laughs> smile on his face. Right. Yeah. It's like, wow, why are he's you doing this? Jolly Irishman. <laughs> yes. like, that's I really loved him. Yeah. So he's in, the, he's in the pen at this time. And so he ends up kind of taking Jimmy under his wing. So he is the trustee that given Jimmy is given to him in order to kind of keep watch on him, maybe kind of educate him yeah. and help him to just become maybe a better person. Yeah. And he's he's noted as saying that he thought that Jimmy was, was a bright young boy. Um, he thought he was kind of developed a little bit mentally beyond his years, but he was kind of physically not very fit, kind of a small mm-hmm. little guy. And he had bad teeth. <laughs> and it's funny that this comes into play a little bit later with another psychiatrist who comes to look at Jimmy and thinks that juvenile delinquents, many of them, one of the things that he notices is that they have bad teeth. Oh, so gosh. I was like, okay, this is getting a little interesting here. Yeah. So anyway, they looked at sending him to St. Anthony's. I guess the warden did bring this up, but there were parents from St. Anthony's school who wrote to the warden and said, do not send him to our school. We're afraid of the influence that he could have on our children. Yeah. Wow. So everybody thinks that Jimmy is, is pretty much a bad, a bad seed. Yeah. yeah. So, and that and kind, of, kind of breaks my heart, right? Yeah. You know, you think about this, and you're like, oh my gosh. <sighs> so anyway, he is detained in the cell, kept away from the other inmates. And it's actually kind of, he, they, he's actually able to go to the library. Mm-hmm. So where would the library have been in 1912? Would that have been in one of the cell houses or? It's probably in the administration building oh. is, my, is my guess. Okay. But, you know, sure. like most things here, it's, it's so hard to document <laughs> right. from decade to decade what right. building was used for what. So Well, anyway, that's so that's, yeah, that's kind of the way. And that's probably where Mr. O'Neill, Barney, would take him and kind of help educate him. Mm-hmm. It was a room that was quite quiet away from everyone else. So anyway, that was kind of... Uh, Kind of what Jimmy's day were, was like, just being, you know, going into the, this room and probably learning and how to be a better person. Mm-hmm. I'm even learning some educational components as well. So another president of the New York Juvenile Association, this Charles Hills, he comes to visit Jimmy as well. And he is also talking about the decay of teeth leading to young people mm-hmm. having, and, and I think particularly boys. He doesn't really, they don't really talk about girls. Right. They talk about bringing, you know, these boys and having this being the cause of their delinquency, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, too, because it's sort of around this time where phrenology is going to come in, or it has, mm-hmm. has come in already. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they're really trying to figure out, like, what is it that makes this person this way? Yeah. And I, I think... I think they had it just the opposite, where it's it's more likely because they had parents who may not have cared for them or didn't teach them correctly. Totally, that yeah. they you know they had bad teeth and they were juvenile delinquents, <laughs> but but they were so focused on trying to find a root cause, coming up with a yeah. a type like they're sort of the the pre 
the prototypes of of the the uh, like serial killer profiles sure. and things like that. But I think they were, and they were also looking for something physical. They weren't right, really yeah. looking at the uh, emotional right. or the um, right. you know that environmental yeah. situations. They were looking for this. In, what's making these kids bad? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's their teeth. Yeah. So, yeah. but so that was very interesting. So because these two um, well known people had brought this up, the warden actually allowed him to go to a dentist, mm-hmm. and so he does go to a Boise dentist who then agrees to go ahead and give him, you know, an apparatus to try to help straighten his teeth. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, let's just see if this works. Right. Well, really, does it work? <laughs> Who knows? We Over time, uh-huh. Jimmy might have just, you know, become a better person. Right. So anyway, but on the way home from one of the trips to the dentist, they allow him to buy a baseball mitt. So this is kind of the thing that we know a lot about Jimmy and think, you know, that this is probably what was really the neatest thing about his time here is that the deal was if he could control his temper, then he could be part of the baseball team. And so he was kind of what, what would you think, like maybe a bat boy or something? Or That's, that's what I've seen him as, yeah, it was the uh-huh. bat boy, yeah. Yeah, so playing but, baseball was a privilege and being part of this team was a privilege that they allotted him if he could you know, keep his anger under control and whatnot. Uh, so Mr. O'Neill, Barney, then taught Jimmy manners and tried to really focus on him just being a good person, saying please and thank you or no thank you or, you know, and trying to better express himself, it yeah. sounds like. Yeah. He wasn't very good at, you know, really telling you what he wanted without getting angry because you didn't understand. Right. You know, it's like, how come you can't read my mind? Well, right. you need to tell me what you what you really need and what you really want. So there was another um, psychologist in Boise who came and examined Jimmy. This is about two years after he's been here. This is 1914. And she said that she finds him mentally normal, except that he has unusual and uncontrollable temper. So even two years afterwards, she is, and what, what, however she evaluated this, I'm not sure, but that was kind of what she, what she came up with. And at this time, Warden Snook was continuing to keep him apart from the other inmates and just maybe spending time with Barney and... Mm-hmm. But Barney wasn't here that long, was he? About yeah, a year and three months. Okay, yeah, so October I, 1914, yeah. yeah. So after you you've told me that, I wondered if who was it then that right. took over this role right, yeah. of his teacher, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I never yeah. got any information as far as what other inmate mm-hmm. took over this role. Yeah. But whatever the case, Jimmy did still try to become. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds like he's tried to better himself. Mm-hmm. And then there was a teacher from Boise who actually came in and was actually able to give Jimmy some educational classes, Mm -hmm. kind of work with him a little bit. So over the years, things are just continuing, I think, to get better Mm -hmm. for Jimmy. I think he's starting to learn and become a better person. In, let's see, 1916, there was another guy from the Navy, another doctor who also came and still very interested in Jimmy, trying to find out, you know, more about him. And he said that he felt like he was having good treatment under Warden Snook as he could receive at any outside special school. Because at one point, they did want to send Jimmy to a school in California that was only for um, young men of his age Mm -hmm. who had committed, you know, a pretty serious crime. But they decided, no, that that wasn't going to happen. Probably maybe cost to the state, whatever. But they kept him here. And obviously, they're making good, good progress, right? He does appear before the parole board uh, in about April of 1919, but his parole is denied. So he's only been here, what, about seven years? Seven years. years, And that first parole is is denied. And then he personally appears before the board in 1920, and he is going to speak to the governor at the time and talk about what he did. So he's 19 years old, and Mm -hmm. he says that without... 
without even flinching, you know, he's just standing up there and he's telling his story before the board. And one of the things that they noticed is that he showed no signs of real regret or remorse. Mm. And he's telling the details, just kind of the gruesome details, and he's going through it. But they're wondering, wow, has he changed at all? Because right. he's not really showing any emotion or, or you know, regret for committing this crime. Yeah. So they're still, I think, you know, a little bit concerned about what should they do with him and right. when should we allow him to be paroled? And then there were some letters that came in from his father and some of the surrounding people in their neighborhoods or in their community mm-hmm. saying that, you know, they felt like he should be pardoned. Wow. They from really, his father. His father, right, after the, the murder of his mother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and it's been long enough that, too, he could basically be like, my son's an adult, like, I don't need to care about him. But that, I mean, yeah. there is something to be said yeah. about the fact that his father wants to have mm-hmm. him back. Right, yeah. right. And the, and the members of the community yeah. are willing to accept him yeah. back, you know, thinking, oh, so could crazy. this happen again? Mm-hmm. But maybe they're just convinced that he's become a better person. Right. So then a conditional pardon is given to him mm-hmm. in 1921. So that's pretty amazing. So he he continues to ask for a full pardon over the years, but mm-hmm. just a conditional pardon at first. And that really meant that he had to stay within the confines of his community. Okay. He couldn't go out, you know, move or whatever. And so he was unskilled, so to speak. And so going back and working on the farm was about all he knew and about, yeah. you know, all that he could, felt comfortable doing. Right. The only problem was at certain times of the year, there were certain jobs like, you know, the harvesting and right. whatnot was only going to happen in the, in the you know, fall. Mm-hmm. And then what's he going to do? He could work in the fields in the summer. And then so in the winter, he was looking at going and working on ranches around mm-hmm. the area. So he asked mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And the contingency was that as long as he contacted the sheriff mm-hmm. in that area, right that he could go ahead and work because they really wanted to know where he was at all times. So that's kind of his lonely life. Once he leaves here, that's pretty much what he spends the next, you know, 50-some years doing is just working, ranching, farming, and living in this little community in eastern Idaho. In 1925, though, he does receive a full pardon, Mm -hmm. but he never does leave eastern Hmm. Idaho. Wow. Does he get married, do you know? He does not get married. So he Mm. dies in 1970 at age 68. Yes. And uh, the census has it that he never married, never had any children, and he is buried right next to his mother Mm. in Hmm. the cemetery there in Fremont County, Idaho. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay. That is interesting. He had a younger brother, Willis. Mm-hmm. He also is, uh, according to the censuses and whatnot, showed that he also never married. Hmm. So the Whitaker family. Just spent time with each other. He actually moved. His oh, last moved. census was uh, in San Francisco, California. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Right. So he kind of just maybe just decided to get out of Dodge yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and start over. No indica- I never did find anything about what he did for a living. Mm-hmm. Or whatnot, but it, of all indications was that he never married and had children either. Interesting. Yeah. So there was one interesting letter that was sent from a neighbor. It was actually a letter to the to the Idaho Historical Society from a neighbor. His name was Fred Porter regarding Jimmy and his return to eastern Idaho. And he said, his home was a mile or two from my own, and I didn't know him well until after his release from prison. But I remember vividly the murder incident, which occurred about 1914. Kind of off, but that's okay. (laughs) When is this letter from? This is from 
1987. 87. So, Did I, so about 14 years after the prison closed down, yes, there were historic sites. Right, okay, yeah, right, yeah. right. And so, and he dies in 70. Yeah. So this is a time after. So anyway, maybe he's just going through some... some collecting. Yeah, yeah, and finds this letter, you know, and it, it, he says, after his release on parole, he returned to our community and worked for various farmers, including my father. In his later life, he herded sheep for a local man named Singleton. He died about six years ago and is buried beside his mother's grave in the Little Aura Cemetery, five miles west of Ashton, Idaho. He was an honest man, intelligent, and a good worker. Of course, his life was blighted, and he was shunned by society, never married. He confided somewhat in me concerning the troubles of his life and his time in the penitentiary, where he said he became a trustee. It was a very sad case indeed. Oh, wow. So he did become a better person. Yeah. You know, obviously yeah. got his anger under control, was able to manage it, mm-hmm. yeah. and lived and worked where he was born and raised. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, being a teenager is hard. <laughs> being a teenager incarcerated at this prison. Wow. Oh, yeah. Can you even imagine? What Oof. type of person would you come out like? Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing that there's a letter like this. Right. Kind of right. commending his life afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I thought so, too. I thought so, too. And just... So, you know, he obviously made some strides here. Mm -hmm. And there were obviously inmates that helped him make, and wardens, guards probably too, Mm -hmm. who helped him become a better person Mm -hmm. to the point where he could actually be given a full pardon and go back and live where he wanted to be by Mm -hmm. his father, Mm -hmm. you know, and... It doesn't. I don't know any about the relationship with the father or anything once he moved home. Or yeah, I do wonder sort of how he might have felt mm-hmm. when, like, as he got older, realizing that this is what he did to his mother. Like, yeah. was there any remorse that eventually mm-hmm. came in? Like, even and yeah. it, and I wonder though if he even felt it even when he was in front of the parole board, but mm-hmm. didn't know how to express sure. that mm-hmm. accurately. Yeah. If he is sort of as. Um, not psychologically developed as these doctors right. are saying right. that he is. Yeah, he's probably rehearsing everything he's yeah. going to say over and over and over. He's mm-hmm. it, right. That's all he's thinking about are the words he's saying. It's not like the emotion he puts behind mm-hmm. it or anything right. like that. Yeah. Right, like, right. <sighs> kind of robotic, yeah. like you know. Yeah. But yet, maybe he was really. But yet, it is interesting yeah. that he could never really probably develop any relationships with mm-hmm. other yeah. people. Yeah, you know, not not just women, but maybe right. you know, just he was kind of yeah. a loner. Yeah. Doing his own job and just happy to be not at the Idaho State Penitentiary, yeah, right? Yeah. So you are a retired school teacher, yes, Suzanne. I am. How would you feel about this if something like this happened today? Like, how would you respond to a situation like this? Because I know there were like teachers that came in from the outside, from local Boise schools, right. to come and teach Jimmy. Would you ever be kind of? proactively involved in something like that? I think that, that I think it would be good on a one-on-one situation. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't imagine actually going into a juvenile detention right. center yeah. and working with a, a group, maybe a small group. Yeah. I think a large group might be really overwhelming, but I think mm-hmm. if you can work with children one-on-one, yeah. I think you have a lot better opportunity to, you know, maybe make a difference, maybe mm-hmm. really be able to educate and see see what's going on. You know, right. when you're in a group, it's hard to assess how everybody's taking in all the information yeah. at least one-on-one if a child doesn't understand they can say hey I don't get that right. can you can you tell me again or can you help me with that again right. and I think that's so much easier so I could see that in a one-on-one situation or small group but it would be difficult for these people that do go in and educate yeah. our young people today who are in these large facilities and 
I don't really know much about how they do educate them, but yeah. I think it would be very challenging mm-hmm. very and almost difficult, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you first heard about Jimmy's story? Like, as a retired, like, yeah. fourth grade teacher, you know, right around this age range. Wow. Could you imagine something like this with your students? I, I can't imagine like... anyone. I mean, for me, that's <laughs> right. just not even within my realm. But I think yeah. as I've worked with so many students over the years, you see kids who are angry and who don't have really good home situations and not that it's ever you know all right to be violent but yet you know living remotely on a farm like jimmy you know loaded guns and things like that that was just part of your home you could just go out and you know maybe go hunt for something you know deer whatever but um so i just i don't know i think there must have been something environmentally, mm-hmm. emotionally, really wrong with him mm-hmm. yeah. to be able to go ahead and commit a crime like that. And I wonder, too, if his, like, sort of cause and effect sort of hadn't been fully developed yet, that, like, mm-hmm. you know, you go out and you, you shoot rabbits and stuff, and you don't see them on maybe yeah. quite the same level as, as right. your parents. And then when you when you aim a, a gun at your mother, you just, there isn't that, like, oh, if, if I shoot her, she dies. Like, there just may not have, that may not have been fully connected. Is because Just because of how, I just as you were saying it, just how, like, almost casual he was about it. Like, almost mm-hmm. like he didn't fully understand this, the seriousness of guns mm-hmm. and gun safety. And Right. But the fact that he, that he came back after he committed the crime mm-hmm. and he never really denied it, you right. know what I mean? Admitted right. to doing it. Yeah. So there's, there's that emotional part that was definitely not developed in him that maybe it came from his bad teeth. I (laughs) kind of doubt that, but you know what I mean? And I wonder how that affected his brother. You know, Mm -hmm. I wonder what the repercussions were of for him at home being there with just his dad and then, you know, what he Yeah, and I wonder if the brother had any temper issues as well. Because not only... Like you, you watch your brother go through it, and then your brother's gone. But then you also sort of have that understanding that your brother is the one who killed your mother. Like mm-hmm. there would be, I can imagine there would be a ton of anger there. So I wonder, do you know? Do you remember in the census how long they sort of were together before the brother left for San Francisco? I don't. Okay, I don't know because that would have been it. Like if I don't know, it'd be interesting if like as soon as the brother came back. Well, his younger brother would have been about sixteen. Well, he was 17? two years younger. Than oh, two Jimmy. years. Yeah. So yeah, so he so, could have left. Right, he could right have as already soon been as, gone. As yeah. soon as Jimmy came back. Yeah. I and wonder, that'd be interesting to right. know. Right, and you know, small communities like that, they're very close-knit, and they probably mm-hmm. don't speak ill of each other, right. so to, you know, so no right. one maybe ever really felt like they needed to, to share, the, right. the, if anything, you know, continued on the wrong vein with right. the dad and the other, and his brother right. Willis, you know. Yeah. But it sure would be interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Family dynamics <laughs> are very, very important in in our growing up yeah. as we all I may or may not be dealing with this holiday season right, <laughs> right. family dynamics family yes. dynamics yes so yes. anyway just so I think those two the Oscar Baker that I talked about last time and Jimmy were our two youngest mm-hmm. inmates here and then the rest are kind of of the teenage mm-hmm. you know years mm-hmm. and doing yeah. just silly teenage things yeah. for the most part <laughs> yeah you yeah. know I think that's what is so crazy about jimmy is that it's like it's his mother it's yeah where right. where other crimes yeah it's teenagers just mm-hmm. doing with friends doing silly teenage things <laughs> but he, he made you know he made reference to the fact that she whipped him mm-hmm. you know right. in that first little interview that he did with the newspaper mm-hmm. and 
whether or not that's true right. and whether or not that is no reason to right. um, yeah. do what he did. Right. You know, you yeah. just walk away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Say, I'm not doing the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I love to tell my the fourth grade students when they come in I you know because they're around that same age they're ten oh, eleven yeah. so I tell them both Oscars and uh, and James's story and I say so from now on if your mother asks you to do the laundry are you gonna do it and they're always like yes <laughs> <laughs> so they're very scare agreeable them, aren't they scare, yeah. scare yeah. them into submission yeah yep. right yeah. <laughs> yes all right. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, thank Anything you. Anything else you want to no. add? Or? No. I just loved no. the connection that yeah. that we made with Barney and totally. Jimmy's no. teacher. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's yeah. lots of connections here at the Old Pen uh-huh. that yeah. I think as we delve deeper into these lives of men and women, they Absolutely. kind of start to – there's a little bit of crossover. Yes. And it's like, wow. Well, yeah. and when you said – and this may not be connected at all just because we couldn't find oh. – but when you said Singleton and that it was uh, someone who'd raised sheep, we just did um, Barbara Ann Singleton earlier <gasps> right. this this season. Yeah. And um, at least her her second husband – I don't know if her first husband was involved in it, but he was a sheep herder. Yeah. And so that would be Where? super – Well, so she's from Twin. Oh. And, but they did say her one of her husbands, while she was incarcerated for, I think, the third time, her husband was away doing sheep herding, and then he'd be back in Boise later. Oh, my so heavens. That Wouldn't would that be, be amazing? That'd be so wild. <laughs> what a connection. That, I don't know if that would be true, but yeah. I right. would, that would be amazing. That would be three connections in this one in episode. In this one episode. Right. That'd be so cool. But what do you think the odds of us finding something about that in the Idaho Statesman are pretty, pretty slim, slim, right? We're yeah, going to have to go yeah. for journals, personal diaries, <laughs> yeah. and things like that. Thank I'll goodness. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> But thank goodness for the Idaho Statesman mm-hmm. and the Chronicle and all these newspapers because, oh, honestly, the, we don't get much from the yeah. warden's reports except, you know, age right. entered. Right. And then we find out all of this from the Idaho Statesman. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know any of those details about Jimmy's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I amazed. When you told me about his parents being related, it was... I know. Whoa, that was a revelation to me. I yeah. thought I knew everything about this little kid. And that, that was like, okay, I got to go back. And <laughs> Yay, I told Anthony Whoa. something he doesn't See, know. See, isn't it Yay, exciting? That makes Anthony me happy. knows so much. I know. Oh, you've, you've done so much on this. It's awesome. So it's great. great and it's wonderful you. that he was so uh, kind of, well, sad in a way that he was so well-renowned in Right. in the U.S. for his crime yeah. that other, you know, psychologists and things felt yeah, the need so to come and find out about him. But mm-hmm. I think that yeah. whole concept of juvenile, you know, delinquency or juvenile issues and crimes and whatnot was really starting to come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, yeah. wow, we got to find out about this young man. Right. right. And get it down in our books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, you guys. <laughs> yeah, it was fun you. again. Yeah. Okay. Well, Woo-hoo. if we were to say uh, do your own time, what would you say? I think I know this time. Do your own number? Yeah. yeah. And your own chores. And your own chores. <laughs> and don't crab about it. <laughs> Good to see you, Sky. Good to see you, yeah. too, Suzanne. Good Love luck it. in Texas. No, I'll, I'll try. I know. <laughs> You're getting there. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.